Well, good morning, and it's uh, really good to be with you today. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I'm John Hosier. Uh, if I'd been preaching here last week, I would have come from Bournemouth, but uh, preaching here this Sunday, I've actually come from Paul as I've uh, moved during the week. So it's been quite a hectic week as far as I'm concerned, uh, but it's... Uh, Good to be with you today. And uh, second visit to you, good to see your growth and, and progress. And uh, I actually come from my son's church, uh, who leads the, the Gateway Church in Paul. And we're in two congregations and a brand new building in the, in, for one of the congregations, just been rebuilt, and then a, a second congregation as well. So uh, we've seen God's blessing as well over the years and had some pressures, but uh, it's always good to see what God is doing in different places. And when you go back to a place and see God blessing again. Uh, that's really encouraging. Now I'm going to take you this morning to uh, Ephesians and chapter 1. And whenever I, I come to the book of Ephesians, I tend to uh, say the same thing to a congregation, which is this, that uh, I believe that the New Testament can be viewed like a range of mountain peaks, and every chapter is uh, a peak of a mountain. Um, but amongst those uh, range of mountain peaks, there, is one, there are three peaks that are higher than the rest, I believe. And those three peaks, I would say, are Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 5, and Ephesians 1. And the reason I say that is that I believe if you were sent away ever to that mythical uh, sort of uh, desert island, if you could only take three books of the New Testament, or three chapters rather, uh, or three books and with three, these three chapters, uh, that would, I think, feed your soul for eternity, really, because those three chapters, uh, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 5, and Ephesians 1, contain just about all Christian truth. If you said to me, which is the Mount Everest out of the three, uh, I would say it's Ephesians 1. I personally feel this is the greatest chapter in the Bible, and I'm going to just read from the opening verses, because this is a passage that's actually has kind of been resident with me for decades, and is at the core and fibre of my being. So picking up in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, I believe in my now fairly long life uh, that we are probably living at the most scary time that I have known. Uh, if you look at the world of nature, uh, we hear constantly of, uh, of climate change. Uh, parts of the world seem to be flooded all the time. Other parts of the world are burning up. Uh, we're aware of this terrible earthquake that took place in Turkey just uh, a couple or so weeks ago. By the way, isn't it in incredible how quickly things go off the headlines? I don't think I've heard Turkey mentioned once this week. 
and yet over 50,000 people killed in that earthquake. And then, of course, we're at a time of warfare. There are wars and rumours of wars. We know the terrible ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and uh, we can get used to that, but actually it brings us really quite close to the possibility of nuclear war all the time. Uh, it's a very serious conflict that uh, rages on there. There are rumours of wars. I think of China and Taiwan. I think of uh, a North Korea launching ballistic missiles to see if they can uh, get them as far as America if they needed to or wanted to do so. Uh, you, we're confronted with that. And then we've obviously had a pandemic which has uh, changed all our lives. And I don't think anything will ever be quite the same since that pandemic. And uh, we're also living now in increasing male uh, moral chaos, where it seems to me that even politicians don't know whether a person is a man or a woman. And uh, we're at a time when people are thinking, who am I? What is my identity in the midst of all this? And I want to say that as a Christian believer, we need to understand that our a central identity is that we are people who are in Christ. And if there is a, a passage of Scripture that really describes that for us, it is this uh, passage that I've just read to you from Ephesians chapter 1. This is an absolutely crucial passage of Scripture where Paul underlines what for him is the, the best way of describing a Christian as someone who is in Christ. He uses that expression scores of times in his letters. He uses it many times in these first few verses in Ephesians chapter 1, that we are people who are in Christ. And that's what I want to bring home to you uh, about your identity this morning. So let's pick up at verse 3 because I'm going to just go through these verses quite carefully with you. And we notice as we pick up in verse 3 that Paul does what he typically tends to do in his teaching, and that is to give a general principle. And then having given that general principle, he goes on to spell out the details. So here's the principle that he wants to uh, lay down before us. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this particular verse begins with a shout of praise. Uh, because we're uh, quite English in here, we tend to say praise be, but it ought to be roared out praise be. Uh, Paul is exploding with praise at the beginning of this passage. And then it's, it's best to work this uh, verse in, in a way backwards because it's all about being in Christ. And you'll notice at the end of the verse it talks about the fact that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that is Paul's dominating theme here in the first chapter of Ephesians and particularly in these opening verses that we are those who are in Christ. And to be in Christ means that we are joined to Christ, that we're united to Christ, we're baptised into Christ, we belong totally to Christ and we're so united with him so in Christ that everything that is true of Christ becomes true for us and so Jesus died and uh, we will die but Jesus rose and we have risen and uh, Jesus has been given a new body and we will receive a new body one day all that's true for Jesus is true for us uh, a death in him a resurrection in him and a, a new body in him uh, because we are people who are united and joined to Jesus, we're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we have been blessed, it says, working backwards through this verse, with every spiritual 
blessing. Uh, let me just say for now that it's important to understand that every spiritual blessing is different from every material blessing. Uh, sometimes people seem to want to join Christianity because they feel that way is the way to material blessing. And sometimes actually there is an overflow of material blessing when you come to Christ. But that's uh, not true to say that you will become possessor of every material blessing. You never will in this life. But the scripture says here that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. And then it also reminds us where our citizenship is because uh, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the, the reference to heavenly realms is a reference to our, to our citizenship and to where we belong. And it's important to know where we belong, where we really belong. And we have a bit of a problem uh, experientially uh, with this matter of belonging to heavenly realms because the reality is that in a sense we straddle two realms. We straddle a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. Uh, I'm going to put this to you by way of an illustration because it's possible even to stra straddle two earthly realms at any one time. So if I take out a passport from my pocket, I can see here that I belong to the realm of the United Kingdom. That's what this passport actually tells me. I am a British citizen. Uh, and the, uh, the, that fact is actually stated here in this passport. Look, here is a photograph which was taken while I was doing a stretch in Dartmoor Prison. Uh, and uh, alongside this, it says that I'm a British citizen. So uh, that is uh, the realm to which I belong. But I want you to imagine for a moment that I go on holiday to France. And uh, uh, while I'm in France, I'm not probably going to be very conscious of the fact that I'm a British citizen. What I'm conscious of is the realm of France. And so I hear the French language. I see French people. I eat French food. I may even have a glass of French wine. And uh, everything around me is speaking of France. So while I'm there in the realm of France, all that I see and experience visibly and experientially belongs to France. But supposing while I was in the realm of France, I was to get into trouble. I got arrested by the police and put on a charge for, for some reason. What would I do? I would remember that the realm I really belong to is the realm of Great Britain. And I would be appealing to the realm of Great Britain for help. I'm a British citizen, I'm in trouble in France, but I belong to Great Britain, and so I need uh, help from Great Britain. Now, I use that as an illustration of straddling the, the heavenly and earthly realm. The fact is that visibly and experientially, what we're faced with all around us at the moment is the earthly realm. And so, because we are looking at things like how do we pay our mortgage, or how do we pay our rent, or uh, how do we get a new job, or how do we work at the present time in the job we've got, or uh, how do I look after my family at home, I mean, we're just surrounded by all sorts of concerns and interests and involvement with this earthly realm. But my friends, although that's what we tend to see and are so aware of at the present time, it is not the realm to which we truly belong if we're in Christ. Because if you read in Philippians 2.20, it says we are citizens of heaven. Exactly. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the realm to which we really belong is the realm of heaven. It's the heavenly realm. Now put all that together here and Paul is saying that he is praising God for the fact that we are blessed in the, the heavenly realm, that is in the, the realm to which we essentially belong with every spiritual blessing 
which is ours because we are in Christ. Now that's the general principle and it's something that ought to bring praise to our lips but it could do with a bit more explanation because it's not unreasonable to say well if we've got every spiritual blessing in Christ what exactly are those spiritual blessings? And that's exactly what Paul then goes on to outline as he unpacks the detail of this in the following verses. So we've got the general principle, it's every spiritual blessing that comes from the fact that we are citizens of a heavenly realm, that we are essentially those who are in Christ, but what exactly are these spiritual blessings? Well, let's see what Paul says. And the first one he mentions comes in verse 4, for he chose us in him, that's in Christ, all this is about being in Christ, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Now this is uh, saying something to us which is quite extraordinary because what it is relaying to us is the fact that even before creation began, even before you knew you existed, even before your parents knew that they were going to have you as uh, their child, before your awareness, before your uh, parents' awareness, before even there was a creation, before there was anything in existence at all, God in eternity, and eternity goes on for a very long time, God all in eternity was doing something. What was God doing? This is one verse in the Bible that will tell you what God was doing in eternity before there was even creation. And what God was doing was thinking about you. Because it says that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. And in an age when people are wondering who they are and what's the meaning of their particular life and what's their significance, I can think of nothing more significant than this, that we have a living God who has existed for eternity and who in eternity, before he put a star into space, before he created this world, before he brought about this universe, before your life even began, knew that you would exist and he chose you for himself. And it's one of the great blessings of knowing who we are because we're in Christ, we're chosen by the eternal and living God. And then the, the, the verse goes on, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now it's possible very easily to read the second half of this verse in the wrong way. What people sometimes do with this verse is to get hold of the first half and recognize something of the wonder of being chosen by God before uh, creation was even begun. And having got hold of that, they, they get a bit overwhelmed by it, and rightly so, and they see the second part of the verse as a response. If God has chosen us before the creation of the world, that is fabulous and fantastic. What do I do about that? The answer is in the second half of the verse to be holy and blameless. Now, I can understand people reacting like that, but it's wrong. Uh, and I don't want to dissuade you from seeking to be holy and blameless, but that's not the way that you should read it. Please note, we are chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words, because we are chosen in Christ, God sees us right now as holy and blameless. This is not telling us what we should do, it's just telling us what we are. And because we're in Christ, we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
Remember, you're joined to Jesus, and therefore you're covered with his righteousness. And so God this morning is looking down on this room, and he's seeing it full of holy and blameless people, because you are in Christ. And so often we want to know what we should do, but first of all, you need to understand who you are, and who you are as a person in Christ, seen by God to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now the next spiritual blessing comes into verse 5. So right at the end of verse 4 it says, in love, and then in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through or in Jesus Christ. So again, this is one of our spiritual blessings. Adoption to sonship in Jesus Christ in accordance with with his pleasure and will. Now for most Christians you've only got to use the word predestination and they kind of freak out a bit. Yeah, I'm not happy you know with this. What do we mean by this? Am I predestined? Am I not predestined? And you get all this kind of a concern. Will you please notice how the Apostle Paul puts this? He does not say in order to worry us he predestined us. Alright? It does not say in order to confuse us he adopted us. It says in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Now, uh, when it says he predestined us in love, really it, it just means this, that God loved us and set us aside for himself as the adopted children of God. It took me a long while in my Christian life to really fully understand the, the significance of adoption. Uh, I, I the church I come from, Gateway Church in Paul, has an unusually high number of adopted children. Uh, it's quite a percentage of uh, our um, families within the, the church have adopted children. It's really brought it home to, home to me. You know, an adopted child is a, a very special child. If I can put it to you like this, um, if you have a, a child in the normal way, um, you get what you get. Right, so you don't get any choice about it. Um, you're delighted about it. Uh, you're thrilled with it. But uh, the child that comes is the child that comes. You get what you get. Uh, I always thought of this particularly with my my son, who leads the the, the Gateway Church in in Paul and uh, Paul and his wife Grace. Uh, so years ago, they they had. In, quite quick succession three girls so they had three girls we had uh, three daughters we had three, three three granddaughters so that was great and there was a bit of a gap and then one day grace said to us i'm pregnant again so you're a bit surprised but uh, uh we thought to ourselves well there are three girls and uh we we reckon uh, we never discussed it with them but we we reckon that they decided to go for a, a fourth child in order to have a boy and we thought statistically there must be a, half, a big choice big chance of that you know three girls you know surely the next one is going to be a boy now I was on a ministry trip with my wife and we were we were uh, flying to, uh, out to Asia and uh, uh, we stopped at Singapore and as we stopped at, at Singapore to, to change flights there was uh, a text message that came through from Matthew that said Grace is in labour could you please pray uh, so we did kind of as we went through baggage collection and everything and then as we came out of the airport to get into a taxi I got another text just to let you know Felicity has just been born and that was the fourth granddaughter for us and uh, and of course delightful as she is uh, she is the fourth girl uh, and it brought home to me you get what you get you don't know what you're going to get but you get what you get 
Now, it's different with adoption because you don't get what you get in that way. You actually choose a particular child. And you say to that child or about that child, we choose you. And you choose whether uh, it's a boy or a girl. You choose other factors that go along with that child. But it's not just getting what you get. You deliberately choose to have that child. Now, if I can put it to you this way, my friends, when it says that we have been adopted into the family of God, we need to understand that God didn't just get what he got. You know, he didn't one day wake up, as it were, and find, oh, he got you. All oh, right, put up with you now. It wasn't like that. No. God adopted us. All right. We were actually targeted by God. We were chosen by God in order to join his family. Now, the ladies here may get a bit fed up with the constant reference to sonship that you can find in the Bible. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship in or through Jesus Christ. Let me just help you with this if I can. If in, you, in your Bible you used to go back a page or so, you come to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when we read, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So there you have it again. Uh, but it's just possible that some of you could look at a version which reads slightly differently because the, the word construction there about receiving adoption to sonship is slightly complex in the Greek language and what it really essentially means, and some translations actually put it this way to bring out the kind of richer meaning of it, is that we are adopted to the full rights of sonship. It's more than just adopted to sonship, but you, you're adopted to receive the full rights of sonship. And that's what covers the, the, the women amongst us as well as the men. That when we're adopted by God into the family of God, whether we're male or female, we receive the full rights of sonship. Right. Now, if you go back into uh, the culture of the time and think of a Roman father who, who might do adopt a, a small boy into his family, when he adopted a boy into his family, he would give him the full rights of sonship. And so, for us, male or female, when we are adopted into God's family, we are given the full rights of sonship, which include, for example, inheritance. And so we read in 1 Peter chapter 1 that there is a great inheritance which is laid up for us in heaven, guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also includes access, that uh, we're given access to the Father. Now, let me just try again, put this across to you by way of an illustration, because I think sometimes we, we don't kind of understand the full wonder of what God has brought us into. I want you to imagine that I wanted King Charles to uh, grant a request for me. So what I would do is that I would go to uh, Bournemouth Station. Actually, no, I wouldn't. I'll go to Paul Station. <laughs> i go to Paul Station. I'd get on a train, and that would take me up to Waterloo Station in London. At Waterloo Station, I would get out of the train, and I would change to a tube train, and that would take me to Victoria. 
I would come out of Victoria, I'd walk down through Victoria and into Westminster, and eventually I come to Buckingham Palace, and the, 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 the flag is flying, so I know the king is in his castle, as it were, he's there, he's resident. So I go to the front gate of Buckingham Palace, and there is a, a soldier, and I say to this soldier, excuse me, sir, but I'm a British citizen, and uh, as a British citizen, I would like to see my king and ask him to grant me a request. And he says, sure, John Hosier. And so he opens the gates of Buckingham Palace, and I walk through, and there's this great square, you know, in front of Buckingham Palace, and I go up to a side door, and there's a policeman, he's an armed policeman, because it's Buckingham Palace, so I'm very polite, and I say, I'm John Hosier, uh, I was a great uh, admirer of the Queen, I have been a British citizen all my life, I'd now like to speak to the new king and ask him to grant me a request. And he says, sure, John Hosier. And uh, he opens the, the door, and I go into Buckingham Palace, and I, I go down the corridor, and I begin to look in various rooms, and eventually I see the king, and he's, he, he's, he's let, let's say he's rehearsing for the coronation. So he's got a, a royal robe on, and he's got a crown on his head. And I, I walk in, and I, I very respectful, obviously, and say, King Charles, I was uh, such an admirer of your, your mother, the queen, but now you're the king, and I've come to ask you to grant me a request. Let me tell you something. Not a chance. <laughs> Not a chance. I mean, the number of strikes there are now, I wouldn't even get out of Paul's station in all possibility. You know, not a chance of getting my request from the king. But brothers and sisters, we're in the adopted family of God. We have the full rights of sonship. And that means today, at any time, in any place, you can go before him who is king of kings and lord of lords and ask him to grant you your request. We are adopted uh, with the full rights of sonship in Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, don't overlook this, because uh, it's a little phrase that you could kind of bypass almost in this passage about being to the praise of his glorious grace, because when it says that, it is speaking to those of us in Christ as to the purpose of our life. And in fact, in this passage, and then into just a couple of verses further, Paul uses the same expression three times. So here in verse 6, it's the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, it's that you might be for the praise of his glory. And in verse 14, is that we are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So this particular phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of his glory, is repeated here, it's given three times, and it's actually speaking about the purpose of our lives, which is to be for the praise of his glory. Now, I was listening to a radio interview years ago, and there was a lady who was interviewing a philosopher. And she said to this philosopher, uh, look, you think about the big questions of life, I want to ask you this, what is the purpose of our life? And this philosopher replied to her, the purpose of life is to discover the purpose of life. Now, I thought, isn't that a typical philosopher? You know, what's the purpose of life? To discover the purpose of life. My friends, when we're in Christ, the purpose of our life is to live to the praise of his glory. Put it, uh, perhaps in simpler English, it's to live to please him. None of us as Christians need ever to be bored. None of us as Christians ever need to feel we haven't got anything to do. We don't even have to think to ourselves, I don't know what to do. 
because if we're in Christ, we're for the praise of His glory. We're here to bring pleasure to Him, to live to please Him. Uh, over the, the years as a pastor, um, I was 40 years in full-time um, ministry, and I've gone on, it seems forever since then. Uh, but uh, uh, the number of times people came to me and, and, and said, look, uh, can, you, can you help me with this? I really want to know, you know, what do you think God's purpose for my life is? I used to say to them, it's to live to the praise of God's glory. And I take them to this passage in Ephesians. Look, I, I say three times, Paul tells you, the purpose of your life is to live to please Him. And they'd listen to me, and then this almost always happened. they say to me, okay, but what do you think God really wants me to do? Well, I've got a killer verse. And I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and to verse 16, where Paul says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, it's to live to the praise of His glory. If you want to know some detail on that, then Paul tells you it's to rejoice all the time, pray all the time, and to give thanks all the time. You don't have to, you don't have to join the Hawaiian, mission, Hawaiian beach mission to really please God. You know, maybe, you know, you may, but you don't have to do that to really please God. Whether you're employed, unemployed, whether you're a parent, whether you're in work, out of work, whether you're studying at school, whether you're wondering what to do next, you can live in a way that pleases God. Do all that you do to bring pleasure to Him. And then we, we move on and, say, and, it, and it says that in Him, notice again, it's all about being in Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Now the word redemption can also be translated as ransom, in Him we've been ransomed through His blood. And it brings up an idea that the readers of uh, this epistle in the first century would have been familiar with in, in the fact that there was a redemption or a ransom that could be paid for those that were enslaved. And so this was a society in which there were many slaves, but it was possible actually to buy a person out of slavery at times. Maybe a person had gone into slavery because they were in debt, maybe they'd been captured in war, where sometimes a friend or relative could actually pay a ransom or redemption price. And you could be, you could be sprung out of slavery and into freedom. Now, this is an idea that is actually not unfamiliar to us, if you think even in recent years of times when we've heard of people uh, being uh, attacked by pirates at uh, some parts of the, of, uh, the Far Eastern Oceans, and uh, you know, someone's been captured, and uh, after their captivity, they've been uh, given back, as it were, given their freedom, if a ransom price was paid. That's happened in recent years. Uh, in a sense, it's even true within the Ukraine-Russian conflict. So you've got so Ukrainians who are holding Russian prisoners of war, and Russia wants its prisoners of war back. So their, their men are held in prison, in captivity in Ukraine. How do they get their, their prisoners back? The answer is that you pay a ransom price. And what's the ransom price? Well, probably at the present time, it's that Russia's prepared to give back Ukrainian soldiers held in captivity. But there's a price that has to be paid in order to get people out of captivity 
and into freedom. I want you to imagine that you're walking down a high street in, in Fairham and uh, a Mercedes drives up. It's always a Mercedes, isn't it? And uh, a door opens and somebody gets hold of you, drags you into the back of the Mercedes and drives off with you. And you don't know where you're going and uh, miles later uh, the door is opened and you're taken into a house, you're pushed into a basement and the guy who pushes you in there says, look, you're going to be held there until your family pays up for you. Until we get a ransom for you, you're not going to be released. And you're terrified. You're going to die? You're going to be tortured? Are you ever going to see your family again? Will you ever have anything uh, enjoyable again in your life? You're, you're there in terror, really. And then one day the door opens and the guy comes in and says, oh, get out. Your family have paid up. You're free to go. You can imagine how you'd feel. The liberty, the freedom, the joy of being back with your family and blue sky and uh, green grass and so on. The freedom of it. Well, let me tell you this, my friends. All of us were once held in captivity to Satan. We were his slaves. We, we were held in his prison. But then one day, somehow, we heard through a sermon or through reading a Bible or through a testimony, in some way, the communication came through to us, a ransom has been paid for you that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you understood that, you knew that your sins were forgiven. You knew that the price for you had been paid. You were sprung out of slavery and condemnation and into the freedom of the eternal kingdom of God forever. There's redemption price that has been paid for us through his blood. And then Paul even adds to that the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is again something that I think Christians get a bit confused about. If we have been paid for by the blood of Christ, if his, if his blood has covered our sins, we know that that obviously refers to the sins that we committed before we became Christians. But what about the sins that we commit as Christians? Now, I want to say something to you this, this morning. It can sound a bit dangerous, but I think the Bible is absolutely clear that through the shedding of Christ's blood, all our sins are forgiven, past, present and future. You know, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, it says that Christ died for all our sins. Nothing left out there. It doesn't mean that all the sins before we became a Christian and most of the sins of the present time and even a few more perhaps in the future. It's all our sins are forgiven. Now, you might say to me, well, that's a bit of a dangerous doctrine. You know, that could encourage us actually into sin. I don't think it does. If you really understand the grace of God, which means that the blood of Jesus has covered all your sins, I think it's a motivation actually to want to live without sin, not to move into sin. But if all our sins have been forgiven, and this is where the problem comes for us, if it's true that all our sins have been forgiven, the past, present and future, why do we still ask God to forgive us our sins? And in fact, in 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sin, and he's speaking here to Christians, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And often as Christians, we confess our sins. But if you're saying all our sins are forgiven, why do we pray that God will forgive us our sins? And I think you can get into a real kind of a difficulty about this. What are we actually doing here? Is our sins forgiven or not forgiven? Now, what we need to understand is that there is a difference between a legal status and a living relationship. And your legal status as a believer in Christ is that all your sins are forgiven. That's our legal status. But that is different from an experiential living relationship. 
So I'm going to put it to you again by way of an illustration. Now, we're still in uh, wintry weather. Indeed, I think we've got a cold week ahead of us. And if you are a married couple, you will probably identify with this when I tell you that you have probably at some point during your marriage, and maybe even right now, been engaged in thermostatic wars. And thermostatic wars go like this. Usually, the husband in the relationship believes that the thermostat should be down somewhat. Now, let's, let's say 20, 20 degrees is comfortable in your home, or my home, let's say that. And, and, you know, that you'd believe it should go down a bit. But if you're the wife, usually you believe it should be up a bit. And so this kind of situation can arise, that uh, I'm thinking to myself, well, it's cold and uh, the fuel bills have gone up dramatically, you know, we've got to pay all this increased cost, so actually I think I'll sneak it down a bit. Let me try 18 degrees, all right, so I'll get it down to about 18. So uh, my wife is sitting there and she says, God, it's cold in here. And I said, no, no, it's, I think it's fine. She says, you've been turning that thermostat down. So, uh, she said, you've turned it down. She says, what do you put it down to? So I said, well, only to 18. 18 degrees? No wonder I'm freezing here. And at that moment, two things are in play. One is this, we are still legally married. <laughs> All right? <laughs> 55 years ago, we both said I do in North Finchley Baptist Church, till death us do part, and that still remains. My family know, my friends know, I've got a legal certificate to prove it. We are still legally married. But at that moment, something else is in play, and that is there's a breakdown in the relationship, which is quite serious. Uh, and uh, a deep freeze has come upon our relationship. And so what am I going to do? Now, I remain legally married, but I'm not living up to my marriage, if I can put it like that. So what I've got to do is actually to put it, to say to my wife, I'm sorry I did that, and sneak it up to at least 19.5. I've got to get that thermostat back up, OK? And then warmth is restored between uh, uh, us and the relationship is restored. Now, my friends, it's like that between us and God. There's a legal status, all right? Your sins are forgiven. That's legal. And nothing can affect that. But actually, we don't just live by legal status. It's a living relationship. And so if you're out of sorts with God because of some sin, that's why we confess our sin. That's why we say that we're sorry. That's why we turn away from that sin, that the living experience of that relationship can be restored. Okay, another couple of things very quickly as, uh, before we finish. But it says also in verse 8 that he, uh, that, he forg- he, that he did this in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Now, this is wonderful truth. So, we are lavished with the riches of God's grace. I love the word lavish. Some words are just nice words to say. And I love to say the word lavish. If you ever watched the series Miranda, she liked the word plunge. All right, nice word to say. But this is lavish, and I love the word lavish. When I used to travel to India, uh, I I, I loved the fact that in India there was a state called Karnataka. I just love the word Karnataka. And so whether or not I was going to Karnataka, I would say, I'm going to Karnataka, or I'm not going to Karnataka. But I use the word, because I love to say the word. It's the same with lavish. It's a great word. We have been lavished with the riches of God's grace. If, you, if you're like me, you like uh, strawberries and cream in the summer. 
And uh, uh, so you have the strawberries, and then there's the issue of the cream. Now, there again, there's an interesting dynamic between husband and wife when it comes to cream. Uh, you want to put cream on your strawberries, but wives and husbands have a different view of cream, all right, generally speaking. A wife buys cream to decorate the fridge, but a husband <laughs> has a mission to liberate the cream from the fridge. And so it goes something like this. You've got the strawberries, and you open the fridge, and my wife says, what are you doing? And I'm saying, getting out the cream. Why? Well, I thought that actually we bought stuff and put it in the fridge to, to actually eat it. Right? So anyway, so I, I managed eventually to get the cream out of the fridge. Now, you know you get these cans, and uh, you put your finger on the top, and you go, Psh, that's the sort of cream you want for strawberries. So you get out the can, and you go, Psh, and but there's lavish, my friends. <laughs> Let me tell you this, that there is a God in heaven with a huge great can which is labelled grace. And he's got his finger on the button and God is going like this. <laughs> and there was grace to save you and there's grace to keep you and there's grace that will bring you to eternity because we experience the lavish grace of God. It's one of our spiritual blessings in Christ. Okay, just bear with me as I read to you very carefully the last couple of verses. It's a long sentence, so take, take uh, 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 as it were, a deep breath as I just explain it to you. He, God, made known to us, right, who are in Christ, God made known to us the mystery of his will. And in the New Testament, a mystery is something previously hidden but now fully explained and made clear. So God made known to us in Christ something that was previously hidden, but it's now been made clear, which is according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So God's work of revelation here and what he intends to do is all done through and in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are part of this which is to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, which is a slightly long-winded way of saying this is what God is going to do at the end of history. So again, let me read it to you. God made known to us the mystery, something previously hidden, but now revealed according to his God pleasure. He's working it through the person of Christ, and because we're in Christ, we're included, is going to be put into effect at the end of history. What's God going to do? What's his purpose? What's his plan? What's he actually going to do at the end of history? The answer is this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Being in Christ, we know how the world is going to end. Now, we may not know all the details, and we may argue about the details to some extent, but the fact is, if we are in Christ, there is a mystery previously hidden, now revealed. It's going to be worked through according to the pleasure of God in the person of Christ. It includes us at the end of history, what God will do. And you can have a slightly better translation than we've actually got in my copy of the, uh, of the Bible here, which is to actually regenerate, restore, renew an entire frustrated creation to perfect unity under the headship of Jesus Christ. And that's what God is going to do at the end. And we're going to be involved in that. 
you know, we're not going to live up there, out there vaguely. We're going to live in new bodies, in a new creation, which God is going to bring about through His Son at the end of history. And the blood of Christ, which was strong enough to rescue you from sin, will finally be strong enough to reconcile an entire created universe to God. And God's purpose is to unite and to restore and to regenerate the whole of creation under the headship of Jesus Christ. We know how the world is going to end. It's wonderful to be in Christ. Why don't you stand? Let's just have a, have a positive confession.